0: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 113 Ak En Aten. Today, it's the big event The culmination of Pharaoh Amunhotep IV's early policies and his rejection of all opposition to his beliefs. Love him, hate him, he's a fascinating character, and in this episode, the gossip flows freely. From the palace of Thebes to the scorched waste of a site in Middle Egypt, Pharaoh is taking his followers on a bold and unexpected journey. It's part 5 in the life of Amunhotep IV hereafter known as Akhenaten. This episode was brought to you by Maxwell Weno in gratitude for his generous support. Maxwell, thank you for your kindness. I hope this episode, and the list of 18th dynasty literature, goes some way to repaying my debt. Also, thank you to Sandra S. and Christine W., who became patrons of the podcast. Your support means the world, folks, and I am forever grateful. Thank you and may Aten shine brightly upon your day. Words spoken by the King's children. Hail to you, O Ray of every day. Hail to you, O Horus of every day. Hail to you, O Father of every day. Hail to you, King Wa Enre, the Lord, life, prosperity, health, his only son, who seizes the magic while your writings are for the said festival. A lifetime for he who uncovers the secret writings at the appearances which occur through it. A festival song in the festivals like re forever. A fragmented hymn sung by the young women of the court for the glory of Pharaoh on the occasion of his said festival. The year was 1358 BCE. Regnal year 5, under the majesty of Amunhotep hotep IV, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, son of Re, lord of all that the Aten encircles. Life was good for the young Pharaoh. He was privileged, powerful, and possessed by a confident vision of his future. Residing in the city of Thebes, ancient Waset, Amunhotep had inherited a mighty kingdom and now enjoyed its fruits. He also enjoyed the company of his family, which by this time included up to three children. Amunhotep IV had chosen his queen early in Regnal Year 2. By year four, the great lady Nefer Neferu Aten, Neferet, had become a mother twice or even three times over. Nefertiti was a fertile woman. Within quick succession, she gave the pharaoh one, two, and then three children. All of them were daughters. Around the time of the said festival, the artistic scenes at Karnak begin to show three young princesses. They appear alongside their parents, seated in carrying chairs while traveling in parades. They appear from eldest to youngest. The first daughter of Amunhotep and Nefertiti was named Merit Aten. Merit Aten, or beloved of Aten, will be a prominent figure in our story, becoming a powerful member of the court, and eventually a ruler in her own right. Merit Aten appears at Karnak for the first time, accompanying her parents in celebrations and rituals for the Aten. When we first see her, Merit Aten tends to stand with her mother, While Nefertiti makes offerings to the sun disk. In one scene, the queen stands beneath the rays of Aten, holding gifts up to the light. In front of her, a small table is piled with food and drink. Behind her, a tiny figure of Merit Aten shakes a sistrum. The princess only comes up to Nefertiti's knee, which could mean that she is incredibly young, say two or three years old, or simply that the focus of the scene is Nefertiti herself. Either way, Merit Aten's presence is interesting, and a cute little addition. In the grander said festival art, we also see Merit Aten's two sisters. These were Meket Aten, the second child, and Ank Esen Pa Aten, the third We'll meet these girls another time, but for now, it's enough to know that Meket Aten would remain a princess, while Pa Aten would later gain fame under the name Ankesen Amun, wife of Tutankhamun and namesake of a villain from the 1999 film The Mummy. Anyway, artistically, the daughters are almost identical to their mother. They have the same straight nose and almond eyes, their forehead slopes down in the same way, and they wear the same costumes, long gowns of fine quality linen that hangs from the arms and flows out from the feet. On their feet, elegant sandals mark their wealth, and their hair is braided in the long plait or side lock which marks children in Egyptian art. So generally speaking, the princesses appear like standard children, miniature versions of their parents. Of course, they also have the elongated and voluptuous figures that adults have in Amarna-style art. The three daughters of Amunhotep IV and Nefertiti would become a prominent part of the royal family's public image. At first, they appeared in the context of the said festival, a tried and true method for promoting royal children. This had been started by the late Amunhotep III, and now seems to have continued. Under the new pharaoh, though, we will begin to see the children play an increasingly prominent role in royal propaganda. Unique among pharaohs, Amunhotep IV will make his wife and children a central part of his iconography, with the result that we know more about Merit Aten, Meket Aten and Ankesen Pa Aten than any previous royal children. It seems that 1359 BCE was a good time to be a princess of Egypt. So the king's early life with his family was relatively idyllic as far as we can tell. Luxury, stability, and celebration made for a comfortable existence in Thebes. And Amunhotep's devotion to Aten gave the king a purpose, one that he pursued with great energy. At home, his family was a source of joy that he would relish for many years, outside the palace, courtiers and nobles were obedient servants, praising the king for his deeds, and following his ideas as they came. In regnal year 5 though, things began to change for the worse, and life for Amunhotep hotep suddenly became much more complicated. Not long after his said festival, Amunhotep hotep IV issued a decree that was, all things considered, totally unsurprising. Having proclaimed his devotion to Aten, made the gods' temples rich, and having raised the deity to the status of a royal god, Pharaoh now made himself a more visibly devoted servant to the Aten. It was time for Amun-hotep to change his name. In Regnal year 5, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt reached the conclusion of his early ideological development. His views on Aten had crystallized, they were now multifaceted and fully grown, and he was ready to express those views more explicitly than ever before. Late in the year, Amunhotep hotep IV issued a public declaration. He declared that he would no longer be known as Amunhotep hotep IV. The name he had been born with, the name with which he had ascended to power, was now to be abandoned. Wherever possible, that name was removed from cartouches, which adorned temples, tombs, and palaces. Now, the name Amun-hotep, Amun is satisfied, would be replaced with something quite different. The king's new name would be written as Ak-en-Aten, which translates roughly as beneficial for the Aten, or one who is effective on behalf of the Aten. That may sound convoluted, but it's quite simple. Pharaoh wanted to communicate the idea that he was a special servant of the god, that all of his actions were in service to Aten. It's not too hard to figure out why the king changed his public identity. For one thing, the name Amun-hotep was closely linked with a god for whom the pharaoh had no genuine affection. Amun, lord of Thebes, was a venerable and powerful being, but the new king simply wasn't interested in his cult. Perhaps he had been educated in other traditions, like the beliefs of Re in the north, or perhaps he had some personal dislike for Amun, we can't be certain. What is clear though, is that changing his name from Amunhotep to Akhenaten represented a rejection of that old deity one who had ruled over Thebes for 500 years. It was also a statement to the people of the land. Before the change, a name like Amun-Hotep might have implied that he was still obedient to traditional hierarchies. Although he praised Aten, the pharaoh's very name implied that he was a servant of Amun. This left things kind of ambiguous, and it seems that our boy did not like ambiguity. So abandoning Amunhotep. hotep the king chose a moniker which was more appropriate to his particular religious outlook. Aten was the supreme god, the ruler on high. The king of Egypt would associate with him before any other deity. The message could not have been clearer. Amun, the patron god of an entire dynasty, was old news. This was the dawning of the age of Aten. A name like Akhenaten, effective for the sun disk, was the perfect summary of the pharaoh's agenda. No matter what, the king made Arten proud. His deeds on earth were the perfect enactments of all that the sun god wished. Henceforth, all ambiguity was erased. The king of Egypt was moving forward to new things with great speed. You could either keep up or be left behind in the dust. We know the rough date when Amun-Hotep changed his name to his more famous one, It happened sometime around April of year 5, in the third or fourth month of the growing season, Peret. How do we know this? Well, there happens to be a letter which survives from this time, sent by an official to the pharaoh, which includes the last known mention of the name, Amunhotep IV. This letter was found at the royal palace in the Fayyum, sometimes called the Harem Palace. It is dated late in year 5, during the third month of Peret. In this letter, an estate servant named Api wrote to the king concerning the institutions of the great city, Memphis. Quote, To the pharaoh, life, prosperity, health, the lord, from the steward of Memphis, Api. This is a communication concerning these things on Regnal Year 5, third month of the growing season, Day 19. The estate servant Api addresses the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the son of Re who lives on Ma'at, Amunhotep. hotep Api says, May P'tah of the benevolent face act for you, the one who created your beauty, your true father, from whom you issued forth to be the ruler of all that the Aten encircles. This is a communication to my lord, to let the king know, that the temple of your father, Ptah is prosperous and flourishing. Also, that the house of Pharaoh is in good order, that the palace complex is in good order, and that the residence of Pharaoh is in good order and security. The offerings of all the gods and goddesses, who are on the soil of Memphis, have been delivered in full, and nothing has been held back. All is offered, pure and acceptable, approved and selected. End Arpi's report is a routine one, all things considered. He assures Pharaoh that the temples operate as normal, that their supplies are sufficient, and that the gods, note, gods, are satisfied. It's a fairly standard message, but there are a few interesting touches. Api's letter might be read as slightly insolent considering the religious policies of his king. The official speaks of Ptah, your true father, the one who created your beauty and from whom you issued forth, which is a bit strange given how clear the pharaoh had been about his devotion to Aten. It seems unlikely that Api, a member of the government, was ignorant of the king's policies, so you have to wonder. Was he making a subtle jab at pharaoh's beliefs? The letter can be read as a simple report, the temple was functioning well, the palace was secure, and the gods were smiling at their offerings. But it is oddly tone deaf, considering what the pharaoh had been talking about. Was Api throwing some quiet shade, reminding the king that there were, in fact, other gods, other creators? Or was he simply a bit tactless? speaking of Ptah's grandeur without thinking about Amunhotep's response. We'll probably never know, but given the circumstances, it's a pretty gutsy letter. The date of Api's letter is incredibly valuable historically, because it correlates with a proclamation soon afterwards in which the king was calling himself Akhenaten. So we now have a good sense that Amunhotep IV did became Akhenaten sometime around April of Regnal Year 5, approximately 1358 BCE. Thanks to this little letter from one official in Memphis, we are able, in a very unusual moment, to actually anchor a significant change in the king's policies. Most of what I've been talking about so far has been vague in terms of chronology. We know the said festival happened, we just don't exactly know when, and we know that the king married Nefertiti, but again, the date is kind of a guess. Thanks to Api, we have a rare bit of certainty, and from this moment forward, we can start to refer to Amunhotep IV as the famous Akhenaten. And so it was that the king of Egypt Amunhotep IV abandoned the god who had given him his name. Henceforth, he would no longer be known as Amunhotep, the god who rules in Thebes, or Amunhotep Heka-waset. Instead, he would be known as Akhenaten. Did the king abandon the old royal god Amun, lord of Thebes? Certainly. But he didn't stop there. Within a few months of choosing his new name, Akhenaten was also getting ready to abandon Amun's city. Around March of 1358 BCE, halfway through his fifth regnal year, Akhenaten boarded a ship at the docks of Thebes and set sail, heading downriver on something like a scouting trip. Sailing north, the king passed a few days in pleasant recreation, until he came upon a place which made him stop and leave the boat. What did he find? Not much. Pharaoh came upon a place that was, all things considered, not particularly special. A wide open expanse of desert on the east bank of the Nile, this area was framed on three sides by cliffs. There was a narrow strip of farmland and probably a few houses with farmers. But overall, this site was a bit of a wilderness, just sand, cliffs and sun. Akhenaten did not see that though. What he saw was a new home for the Aten. A few days sailing north of Thebes in the area known as Middle Egypt, Akhenaten came upon a spot where he could build a new palace and temples to the sun god. This was the area that we know as Amarna. To start, let's set the scene a bit. The city of Amarna is located on the east bank of the river Nile. It is surrounded by cliffs which stretch in a giant crescent around the area. The northern and southern tips of that crescent come almost to the water's edge, forming a giant wall on three sides of the city. Amana is naturally well protected and isolated from the rest of the land. The cliffs which surround Amana are, today, peppered with ancient tombs and cemeteries. They also feature large rock carvings, which were the first monuments created by Akhenaten for his new city. These carvings take the form of huge stelae, chiselled into the cliff face and inscribed with hieroglyphs marking the king's proclamations. The boundary stelae, as we call them, tell us of Akhenaten's vision and his plans for the site. Early in 1358 BCE, around March... Akhenaten visited Amarna while taking a voyage downstream. He recognised the site as an ideal location for a new residence, a palace city which could serve as his home and a place for the cult of Aten. His reasoning for choosing this place was laid out in a rather lengthy proclamation. Quote, Regnal year 5, fourth month of the growing season, day 13. Long live the good god, the one who rejoices in Ma'at, the lord of heaven, lord of earth, the great living Aten, who illuminates the two banks, the father, Horus Aten, who is in jubilee, within the house of Aten, in Akhet Aten. Also, the Horus, beloved of Aten, great of kingship in Akhet Aten, the king of upper and lower Egypt, Neferkeperure wa Enre. Akhenaten, great in his lifetime. May Aten cause the king to rise as a master of the foreign countries, for as far as the Aten encircles. May the sun disk cause him to exist forever, seeing his light while he is on earth every day. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, who lives in Ma'at, Akhenaten, great in his lifetime, living forever. Also, the princess, Great in the palace, one fair of face, beautiful in the double plumes. The mistress of joy, chieftainess of the Artem's female entourage, who satisfies the god when he rises in the horizon, for whom is done all that which she has said. The king's greatest wife, his beloved, lady of the two lands, Nefertiti, may she live forever. Bloody hell, Akhenaten lays it on a bit thick. He is a verbose pharaoh, prone to adding many, many titles to his name, and lots of flowery phrases about himself and his god. His writings are tedious to translate at the best of times, but they do give us a sense of his mindset. The essential part of this introduction is the phrase Aten, great of kingship in Akhet Aten. This marks the first appearance of the name which Pharaoh gave to his new city. He called it Akhet Aten, a.k.a. Horizon of the Aten. It's an interesting name, which I'll explore in more detail in the epilogue. So, the Boundary stele lay out the beginnings of Akhenaten's speech, and give us the name of the new city. With those preliminaries out of the way, the king's speech now turned to the reasons which he chose this site, and laying out the vision for what he hoped to accomplish. The Boundary stele now inform us of the moments which led to the city's foundation. Quote, On this day, when Aten was in the horizon of Aten, his majesty appeared on the great chariot. He set off on a good road towards Arket Aten, his place of the primeval event, which he made for himself, and which his son, the king, made for him. This is Aten's great monument, which he founded for himself. His horizon, in which his circuit comes into being, where he is seen with joy while the land rejoices, and all hearts exult when they see him. A great offering of bread, beer, cattle, wine, and every good thing was presented to the father Horus Aten. His majesty performed the rites of the Aten, who was pleased with what Pharaoh had done for him. The king rejoiced, and the heart of this god was joyful, as he hovered over his place, his majesty stood in the presence of his father Horus Aten as the sun disk's rays were upon him with life, stability, dominion, health, and joy for ever and ever. End quote. So the king tells a story of how he set out on the road towards this place and found the sun shining high above it. Akhenaten saw the location with its wide open space bathed in sunlight. And he realized that here was a place to make his vision come true. With offerings to the sun, and joy in his heart, Akhenaten could declare that he had found Aten's horizon. Looking back at Pharaoh's arrival in Akhet Aten, it's not hard to see how he conceived this as a new place devoted to the god. Before we finish this chapter though, let me take a quick moment to talk about the name of the city, and what this symbolised, both for the king, and in terms of the landscape. The city's name, Arket Aten, is not just symbolic, it also has a powerful relationship to the location itself. You see, the phrase Akhet, or horizon, is written in a simple but interesting way. The hieroglyph Akhet is defined by two mountain peaks, with a valley in between them. In this valley, a small sun disk nestles, suggesting the emergence of the sun between two hills in the east. This is strongly related to the site of Arket Aten. The area which became Arket Aten is surrounded on three sides by cliffs, which encircle the site on its border. Those cliffs form a huge wall, which is mostly uninterrupted, except for one spot. At a single place on the eastern edge, an old riverbed cuts through the cliffs and forms a break in the otherwise solid horizon. It's a distinctive point which is visible from almost anywhere in the city. What's interesting about this feature is that it bears a striking resemblance to the hieroglyph Arket. The glyph features two mountains with a valley in between, and viewed from the ground, the eastern cliffs and riverbed will appear very similar to this symbol. So the city's physical horizon is also a hieroglyphic horizon, making a nice connection between the location and its name. There is also a natural phenomenon which occurs here periodically, and makes the connection even stronger. If you watch the sunrise here at certain times of the year, you will see the sun disk emerge from the horizon at the exact spot where there is a gap in the cliffs. Around February and March i.e. the exact time when Akhenaten first came here, the sun will appear to emerge in the space between the cliffs, making it appear exactly like the sun disc in the hieroglyph Akhet. Cool, huh? It's not hard to see why Akhenaten chose this place for his city. The physical setting was perfect. The natural landscape seemed to produce symbols of the sun god, which marked the Aten's blessing. Add to that the untainted nature of the site, no pre-existing temples or town, and this place must have seemed tailor-made, a natural home for the Aten's cult. For a man like Akhenaten, the choice could not have been easier. We now come to the end of chapter 1. After the break, we continue to explore the foundation of Amana, ancient Aked Aten, and see how the pharaoh justified his decisions to move here. It seems that the pharaoh was not acting entirely voluntarily. In fact, he was compelled to leave Thebes by certain things that were happening in the city. In chapter 2, we're going to see how Akhenaten justified the foundation of Aket Aten, and what it tells us about resistance to his strange policies. That's chapter 2, after the break. See you in a moment. The year was 1358 BCE, around March. The pharaoh Akhenaten was in Middle Egypt, at a site that he called Akhet Aten, Horizon of the Aten. Here he was laying out a vision for a new royal residence, complete with temples for the sun god. This would be the pharaoh's new home, a place where he could worship the deity, and live in peace, away from any troubles. Having discovered the site, the pharaoh now announced his vision. The next part of the stele lays out his ideas, and provides some justification for them. Then his majesty said, Bring me the royal companions and the great ones of the palace, the supervisors of the guard, the overseers of works, the officials, and all the court in its entirety. They were led into him at once, and they lay upon their bellies in his presence, kissing the ground before the good god. His majesty said to the court, Behold, Aten, he wishes to have something made for him, as a monument with an eternal and everlasting name. It is the Aten, my father, who advised me concerning this, namely, the horizon of the Aten. Look, I did not find this place provided with any shrines or tombs or estates, or covered with the remnant of anything which had happened to it before. This place did not belong to a god, nor to a goddess. It did not belong to a male ruler, nor to a female ruler. It did not belong to any people to do their business with it. I found it like a widow. It is the Aten my father who advised me concerning it, and he said, Behold, fill the horizon of Aten with provisions, a storehouse of everything, it is to belong to my majesty to be the horizon of Aten continually forever. End quote. The area which became Aket Aten was apparently virgin territory. There was no major settlement or necropolis here, no temples to another god, no population of any note. In Akhenaten's words, it was like a widow, lacking provisions and devoid of attachments to the past. A bit of a bleak comparison, but there you go. For the king, this desolate, crescent-shaped desert was the perfect ground for a new royal residence. When he found it, he made offerings to the glory of Aten, and then summoned his followers. The king brought his servants, officials, and nobility, and laid out the vision for this new settlement. Naturally, those followers were overcome with joy, and they praised Pharaoh for his wisdom and effectiveness. The text tells us that they said, There is no king who has done the equivalent of this, and You Akhenaten are the ruler who marshals effective things. With such love for their king, they even went so far as to say, Aten did not ordain all that he gives for any other ruler. He acted only for you because you made for him the house of Aten in the horizon of Aten. Basically, the loyal subjects of Pharaoh fell over themselves to praise the king and say how wonderful this vision was. Clearly, moving the court and the palace to an entirely new location with no previous facilities was a very good idea, and the Aten would surely be pleased. Maybe some of them believed this, maybe others were just following authority wherever it led. Whatever their motivations, Akhenaten recorded them as loyal and obedient servants. Of course, the reality was different. The court was not actually united behind the pharaoh, and not everyone did believe in him. In fact, the next section of the text actually reveals some of the reasons why Akhenaten came to this place, why he abandoned Thebes in the first place. You see, Things were not quite as happy as his celebratory texts would suggest. Behind the scenes, there was trouble in the court, and the king was not happy about it. Aket Aten was established. Now, Pharaoh would fill the barren site with provisions. The courtiers begged him to, quote, conduct every foreign land to Aten, tax the towns and islands for him. They noted that, all flat lands, all hill countries, and the islands of the sea, come bearing their tribute, products on their backs, to the maker of their life. The wealth of the land would flow to Aket Aten, just as it had done to the temples of Aten back in Thebes. All of this begs a question though, why exactly was Akhenaten leaving the southern city? He had spent the first five years of his rule in Thebes, and he had made the temples to Aten there incredibly wealthy and prestigious. Why abandon it? Well, part of the reason was the desire to establish something new for Aten. Akhenaten was not the first king to build a new city for his royal residence. Other rulers throughout history had done the same. Most notably, Amenemhat I of the 12th dynasty, and several kings of the old kingdom who built their pyramid towns around the context of their palace. So there was a precedent for building a new royal residence away from the traditional capital. And this may be one reason why Akhenaten did what he did. That being said, there were other reasons too, and the king actually lays them out for us. He's vague, but still... Akhenaten publicly records the fact that a major factor in his decision to leave Thebes was that people, anonymous people, were starting to react to him and his policies. Whether it was his revisions to theology, his lavish spending on the Aten temples, or his neglect of Amun and Karnak, people were not happy. It seems that early in year five, people started to talk about the king, and these whispers were reported to pharaoh's unhappy ears. Speaking on these grumblings, Akhenaten complained, it was worse than those things which I heard in regnal year four. It was worse than those things which I heard in regnal year three. Worse than year two or year one, it was worse than those things which King Neb Maat Ray heard than Ak Keparure heard than those which Men Keparure heard. It was worse than those things heard by any king who had ever assumed the white crown. End quote. The king rails against things of some sort. Rumors, perhaps, or direct complaints. It's not clear. All we know is that people were saying bad things. But what were those things, and who were the people? This gap has led to speculation, with the most popular suspect being the priesthood of Karnak, the devotees of Amun-Re. Just for a moment, let's talk about that priesthood, and what role they might have played in this. We know that Akhenaten played fast and loose with the priests of Amun. Back in episode 111, during the epilogue, we saw how the king sent the highest priest of Amun out into the desert on a quarrying expedition, just around the time that Pharaoh was holding his said festival. Out in the Wadi Hammamat, rock carvings tell us of a man named Maya and his journey on an expedition. Maya was the first servant of Amun, the Chemnetsche Tepi Yemen. And he came to the Wadi in order to quote fetch greywack for the image of the Lord. End quote. In other words, Maya was dispatched to the Wadi Hamamat to quarry stone for use in royal statues, and he was sent there during a very eventful year of the Pharaoh's reign. How convenient, right? Well eventually maya was going to return from that expedition and it's possible that when he did he found the priesthood of thebes greatly agitated by what pharaoh was doing maybe just maybe maya and his colleagues decided that enough was enough they had to say something amun-re and his priests were incredibly important both in maintaining the temples and city of thebes and in protecting the kingdom of egypt The many shrines and sanctuaries at Karnak were staffed by dozens of priests, acolytes, servants and workers. And beyond the temple walls, farming estates and craftsmen throughout the kingdom laboured in service of that great god. Amun, the Hidden One, was easily one of the three most prominent deities in the Nile Valley. Along with Re and Ptah, Amun was responsible for much of the stability and prosperity of the two lands. Now Akhenaten was insulting Amun. Not only had he built temples to Aten within the precinct of Karnak, but he had abandoned his name Amunhotep in order to take on an identity closer to the new god. Would the priesthood have accepted this? Probably not, but would they have dared to challenge the pharaoh directly in a manner that would cause him to leave Thebes itself? That is impossible to say. And although our imaginations get fired up at the thought of these dramatic court conflicts, there really isn't enough evidence to point the finger at anyone with confidence. Yes, the high priest Maya and men like him are potential suspects, but is that enough to convict them? I'll leave that up to you. Apart from the priests, there may be a couple of small clues as to who Akhenaten was frustrated with. Firstly, small traces from the text do hint at widespread dissatisfaction. Pharaoh mentions several groups who were causing him distress. Among them, he mentions officials, Nubians, and any people generally. It sounds as though opposition might have been varied, coming from different places at the same time. Perhaps Akhenaten had upset too many people, and as the pendulum swung against him, Pharaoh began hearing disturbing reports of dissatisfaction with his ideas. Secondly, there's that letter which we read back in chapter 1, a letter sent to the king by a royal official named Api. Api, a royal steward, had sent reports concerning the temple of Ptah and the estates of Pharaoh in the city of Memphis. Ptah, the patron god of that city was not exactly part of Akhenaten's overall vision, and while he may have respected the god in concept, Pharaoh was only interested in the cult of Aten. We already saw how Api might have been a little bit insolent on this particular note. He referred to Ptah as the king's true father, and the one from whom you issued forth. Those sentiments were a direct contradiction to what the king himself was saying and it is possible that Arpi's insolence was part of a general trend, frustration at the pharaoh's policies, expressed in small acts of disrespect. One part of Arpi's letter, which I didn't read before, goes a little bit further on this note, and it may provide a clue to the offensive things which Akhenaten was hearing or experiencing down in Thebes. In a small paragraph of his letter, Arpi makes reference to Ptah protecting the king from troubles in the south. Quote, May P'tah of the kind face act for you, the one who created your beauty, your true father from whom you issued to be the ruler of all that the Aten encircles. May P'tah stretch out his arms and bring back for you the southerners, prostrate before you, while the lands are filled with terror. May he place them beneath your sandals, for you are the sole Lord, the likeness of Ray. So long as he shines in heaven, you shall possess continuity and eternity with life and peaceful years. End quote. May Ptah stretch out his arms and bring back for you the Southerners. Now that is an interesting statement. It suggests some kind of disturbance in the South something pharaoh needed to deal with, but which was serious enough that the gods might need to intervene. What was Api talking about? On the one hand, Api may have been aware of discontent or argument in the southern city. As a member of the government, he probably had one or two contacts, and as a royal steward, he may have come into contact with people from that community. When ships came to Memphis from Thebes, a man like Api, Probably spoke with captains and overseers, both to conduct business, and to get the gossip on what was happening in the palace. From that sort of environment, a man like Api, and officials in general, probably had some idea that, in Thebes, Pharaoh was facing resistance. Maybe Api's letter talks about bringing back the southerners as a wish for peace, Perhaps Api was suggesting that Ptah, in his wisdom, might quell the angry words of Pharaoh's servants. Or maybe Api was even hinting that if the king would show more respect to the great gods, then all of these troubles would go away. It's hard to be sure, and we could easily read too much into this, but the context is suggestive. Maybe Api knew what was happening, and told the Pharaoh how to solve it. If that's what he was hoping to achieve, It clearly did not work. The second possibility is that Api was talking about some kind of trouble in Nubia. The king already mentioned Nubians in his text, and Api writes about bringing the southerners back, quote, prostrate before you while the lands are filled with terror. That suggests some kind of conflict, perhaps there was a Nubian rebellion. We know that Akhenaten did have to deal with raids in Nubia later on in his reign and we'll talk about those another time. It's possible that this period was bad for peace and order in the southern provinces. That being said, it's hard to imagine Pharaoh abandoning Thebes, moving north and building a whole new city just because of a rebellion in Nubia. It's not like he was in any danger personally. The armies and fortresses which protected the Nile Valley would have kept him safe from any attack. And even if Nubian raids were a threat, the king could always have relocated to Memphis, the other capital of the land. There was no need to build a whole new city, just because of a few raids. So I don't think that trouble in Nubia was the reason for Akhenaten's move. At best, it might have contributed, but the sheer scope of what the pharaoh did suggests that something happened in Thebes itself which made the city unsatisfactory as a royal residence. The most likely explanation is that Akhenaten faced some kind of opposition among the elites of Thebes. Priests or officials perhaps grew frustrated with his reforms, and led some kind of confrontation with the king. This conflict was, apparently, enough to outrage the pharaoh. How dare servants speak to him thus? Dissent, resistance to his policies, was not something that this king liked to hear. So, the pharaoh made his servants pack his bags, gathered his loyal followers, and prepared to leave Thebes. It was a landmark decision in 18th dynasty history. Around March of 1358 BCE, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, son of Re, Akhenaten, led his court away from the city of Waset Thebes. This exodus was a response to dissent or argument, perhaps even conflict, which had outraged the pharaoh and compelled him to leave the city of Amun. Seeking a new place, Akhenaten took his loyal followers and established a new home in Middle Egypt. The king's new, untainted paradise would be the Horizon of Aten, better known today as Akhet Aten, or Amarna. Here in an undeveloped region, the king would raise temples, a palace for his government, and many features of a royal residence. This site would be the new home of the sun cult. Aten, shining above, approved this place, and Akhenaten planned to live here in harmony with his god. 1358 Regnal Year 5 marks the culmination of the king's early policies. Since coming to power, the ruler had introduced one concept after another. He promoted the Aten to a supreme status, excluded other gods from royal favour, celebrated a said festival devoted to king and deity, and introduced a new form of artistic representation. It seems that the pharaoh had systematically reshaped one idea after another. Now, that process reached its climax. The king changed his name, abandoned the southern city, and moved somewhere new. These acts were radical to the point of extremism. Akhenaten was no longer a conventional pharaoh who served all gods and maintained their blessings on earth. Now, he was a servant of one god ignoring the others, and he would govern in a place devoted exclusively to one deity. At the city of Akhet Aten, Pharaoh would abandon the conventions of his predecessors and make his new vision a reality. Join me soon for episode 114, releasing in two weeks on the History of Egypt podcast. Thank you for listening, I'll see you soon. Stick around after the music for a short epilogue. The name Akhenaten is famous around the world, and if you read anything on Egyptian history, chances are you will come across this name. Akhenaten, one who is effective or beneficial for the Aten. However, there is a very strong likelihood that you, and I, have been saying this name wrong. The name Akhenaten is quite distinctive, and it has different renderings depending on the source you use. English speakers tend to say Akhenaten, but the French might say Aknaton, and German speakers Eknaton. The three languages put emphasis on different vowels, and fair enough, the hieroglyphic system doesn't give us the exact pronunciation. But from a certain perspective, all of those pronunciations are wrong. Although Ancient Egyptian doesn't preserve its vowels, scholars are still able to get a rough sense of how the words might have been pronounced. Egyptologists can reconstruct some pronunciation based on later developments, and from that they get a sense that the name was probably not pronounced Akhenaten, but rather something closer to Akhenyati. This may sound strange, why would we write it Akhenaten if the pronunciation is supposed to be Akhenyati? Well, there's a grammatical reason, and I'll explain it very briefly. Like every language, ancient Egyptian changed and morphed over the centuries, and different generations slowly altered the pronunciation and even spelling of different words. By the time of Akhenaten, there were two distinct forms of the Egyptian language. On the one hand, there was the classical Egyptian, which we call Middle Egyptian, This is the language of hieroglyphics, usually the language written on temples, tombs, and royal monuments of all sorts. The ordinary people though, the average men and women, and probably even the pharaoh, were speaking something slightly different, a style of Egyptian that had evolved away from the classical form. We call this later form of the language, Late Egyptian, because we're a very imaginative profession. I'll talk about these changes in detail another day. But for now, the most important change that happened in this shift happened with the consonants. In late Egyptian, certain consonants grew weaker. The N, the R, and the T would frequently be dropped from the end of words, and instead be pronounced with an E or A sound. For a word like Aten, or I, T, N, that final N was probably left off, and the word would be pronounced Yati or Yata. So when we write Akhenaten, we are writing the king's name in a more Middle Egyptian style. For the ancients, this man was probably known better as Akhenyati. The pronunciation of his name is not a big deal, the meaning is still the same, and it doesn't change the story. So I'm going to keep calling the pharaoh Akhenaten, after all, that's his famous version and it is closer to Middle Egyptian, which all good scribes should be using. But as the story goes forward, maybe keep in mind that the ancients probably knew the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, son of Re Akhenaten, much better as the Nesubiti Sira Akhenyati. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on.